The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in this good news. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Turn around from what you're doing and believe in this good news. This is our church's seed verse or Zara verse. This was Jesus' central message. The gospel or good news was not just a message of information, but a statement about a new reality breaking into our world. Jesus was proclaiming, and we now proclaim, that the kingdom of God is available to all people through faith in Jesus. In other words, through faith we receive forgiveness, adoption into the family of God, and new life. The kind of life where love casts out all fear and hatred. The kind of life that is marked by joy and not despair. The kind of life that provides real hope for real deliverance for all time. Not mere wishful thinking. It's because of Jesus and this good news of the kingdom's arrival and availability that we are a church at all. That there is a church in the world at all. It's because of Jesus in this new kingdom, I think, and I bank my whole life on, that that there is a life worth living. Otherwise, everything's just kind of futile at best. Now, in Matthew's gospel, we see Jesus proclaiming the good news, and then he goes up on a mountain, or they think it's a mountain, it's a hill compared to us Northwesterners, right? But he goes up on this foothill, and he begins to give one of the most powerful, life-changing, hope-filled teachings in all the world. Oftentimes, it's known as the Sermon on the Mount. And you'll recall that Jesus begins his teaching with amazing grace. He didn't know that song yet, but he, he... He banks his teaching. He forms it on a foundation of grace. And what I mean is that he makes it clear that his kingdom, that salvation, adoption into God's family is available to all, not based on ethnicity or moral perfection or gender or financial situation or social class. It is the poor in spirit that receive the kingdom of heaven. Those who know their deep need for forgiveness and grace. Those who know their limitations. That's pretty much all of us if we're honest, right? And it's the poor in spirit and the mourners and the humble who trust in Jesus. And and He develops our character. He makes... He makes us merciful, more pure in heart. He makes us peacemakers and blesses the persecuted. Jesus does all of this out of grace... And he does it before he ever asks us to do anything. Then Jesus casts a vision for the most amazing life available. In the Sermon on the Mount, we catch a glimpse of life at its best. Life as it's meant to be. Life as it can be when we surrender our own agendas and trust Jesus. And before he gives us this teaching... Jesus is crystal, crystal clear in communicating that he isn't teaching some kind of new religion. He's not setting up a new cult, but he is fulfilling the law and the prophets. Jesus says he didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill. Can you believe that? We talked about this on May 8th, and you can catch that whole message online. But to simplify this notion... 
We can break the law into prophets into three main spheres. First of all, there's the sacrificial law. That's the system that was set up where you have animal and grain sacrifice to help get rid of your sin and get rid of your, your issues so you can come before God cleanly. Jesus fulfills the sacrificial law by dying for the sin of the world once and for all on the cross. That's why this guy John the Baptist, when he first saw Jesus in John's gospel, says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Then there's the ceremonial law. These are the laws that were intended to set God's people apart. There were laws that every day reminded God's people that they were different, that they were set apart for a special mission to show, the, uh, show God and His love to the world. So they had these weird things, right? Like you can't wear clothes with two types of material in them and you can't eat pork. And there's all these things that if you, if you were a, a strict Jewish person, you knew that you were different because of the ceremonial law. Well, it, it, Jesus fulfills the ceremonial law in that after He was crucified and resurrected, He sent His Holy Spirit. So now, believers in Jesus are set apart by a new heart. Instead of just external things like the clothes you wear or the things you don't eat. And finally, there's the ethical law. And this is where the Sermon on the Mount really comes into play. Ethics are God's ideals for life. For example, love is an ethic. But uh, we're to love our, our neighbors as ourselves. That's one of God's ethics that He gives us. But that's pretty theoretical, right? Like, that sounds really good right now, but when somebody ticks me off or something like that, and then I'm supposed to, how does that work? So God gives laws to bring a certain concreteness to, uh, to ethics. For example, you shall not murder. Right? That, that law supports the ethic of loving other people, because if you love other people, you don't murder them. Right? So how does Jesus fulfill the ethical law? First of all, he fulfilled it by living it out perfectly. He's the only one ever in a human body to perfectly live out the ethical law. Jesus was just perfect for him. Second, by, he, he, he fulfills it by equipping and calling his disciples to live this kind of life too. Jesus is adamant. That he's not giving us a new ethic. This ethic is the same from the beginning. What Jesus is doing is recovering the original intent of God's ethic. So last week, Seth did a great job of talking about how Jesus teaches the fulfillment of the command against murder. And what we saw is that Jesus is much more interested in what's going on in our hearts than merely actions. After all, our actions all derive from our heart. So he cares about actions. He just, he just knows that whatever you do or whatever you say or whatever you think is really a product of the heart. So it's the heart from where these things originate. So there are lots of people who abide by the letter of the law of not murdering. Okay? But Jesus said you are just as guilty if you harbor bitterness or contempt for others in your heart. Right? Anger is natural. Anger is a sin. But allowing anger to fester to the point you begin to dehumanize others is a sin. So, we're called to live at peace with one another as much as it depends on us. And you can only do so much. You've all... Probably have some kind of family dynamic where that's true, right? You can only do so much and then people just don't want to receive your peace. But that's what we're called to do. And Jesus, so he wants to rescue us from this perpetual snare of anger. 
Well, this evening we're going to explore what Jesus has to say about adultery. Yes, we're going to talk about sex. Now, I know that sex is often seen as a taboo subject, especially in church. I think that's stupid. I get it to some degree. Sexuality deals with one of the most intimate and therefore vulnerable places a person has. And I get that. And sex is also something that causes people a lot of shame, either because they were taught sex is bad, or because we have some kind of sexual sin, or because we've in some way been abused sexually. So before we talk about adultery, we need to remember that Jesus is the one who gives us this teaching. Jesus is also the one through whom all things were created, both in heaven and earth, whether thrones or dominions or rulers and authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. Jesus is the actor in creation that created people male and female. He designed us from the very begin as sexual beings. God said, be fruitful and multiply, which means within the covenant of marriage, have sex. And that's another way of saying that. So God says it's okay. He created us that way. And sex in the covenant of marriage is good. And I happen to think it's awesome. And think how generous God is in creating us with such a capacity for pleasure. Like food doesn't have to taste that good, right? And sex certainly doesn't have to feel that good. Like it could just be this thing, oh, just do it to have babies or something. But it is... Awesome, and, and God did that. He thought that up. And I think that's pretty darn cool. It's a gift from God. So I want to make one thing abundantly clear before we move on. And that's that we, you and I, are created as sexual beings with sexual desires from the very beginning. And God called this creation very good. All right. Now let's dig in. Would you please stand with me? As we read the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, 27 through 30. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. I think we need to pray. Father, this is um, a difficult teaching for us to hear and to process. Lord, I pray that you wouldn't allow our hearts to grow hard right now. That as much as it might disturb us, you would help us to be open to what you have to say and that you would give us the ability and courage to act on what you have to say. We humbly confess our desperate need for you. Amen. You can be seated. From the outset, it sounds like a reasonable command. Not committing adultery, I mean. 
not breaking the marriage covenant through extramarital sex seems to make sense. Although in recent press, like with guys like Arnold Schwarzenegger, it reminds us that this law is not at all outdated. Adultery not only wrecks relationships, but it damages everyone involved, including children if they're involved, and everyone involved, extended family. The law of not committing adultery supports the ethic of loving one another. Okay? But you could conceivably follow the law of not committing physical adultery without living the ethic of love. Jesus realizes this, and that's why he seeks to fulfill this law by exposing the sin in our hearts. So he goes on to say that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It's a staggering statement. And I imagine those who were originally listening to Jesus were thinking for a split second, yeah, I haven't committed adultery. And then hearing what Jesus said, and did he just say that? Did he just say that looking at a woman with lust for her is the same thing as committing adultery? Shoot. There's a lot of people in trouble with that one, right? Well, let's take a look at this a little bit closer because if this is serious enough to be plucking eyes out and chopping hands off or going to hell, we'd better figure this out a little bit better. So, first question I had, is this just an issue for men? Because if not, then why does it only include men looking at women? And it sounds kind of like married men looking at women. Well, in first century Palestine, as in Roman and Greek cultures in that time, there was an enormous power differential between men and women. Men were in complete control over their families. Men could decide if the new baby born in your family would live or not. They had complete control over the political world. They had complete control over the religious world. And men were men, right? They liked women just like every other guy does. And um, they oftentimes, because they were in control and thought that they were so wonderful and everything, blamed women for anything wrong in sexuality. There are numerous writings in Jewish literature and Roman literature and Greek literature um, from the early centuries that, uh, about the dangers of women. Like these, da- these women are all trying to get us. And so in Jewish culture they would often have married women veiled off, just like you see in Muslim culture today, women would be veiled in long dresses and a veil over their face because of course it's all the woman's fault if a guy lusts. Because if she's pretty, we better cover her up. Right? Well, remember that Jesus' words here are gospel. They're good news. And Jesus is about bringing us, all of us, into freedom from captivity. And in this context, Jesus' teaching here is actually feminist in the best sense of the word. Jesus is saying that it's not a woman's fault that you guys are lusting. It's your adulterous heart. For heaven's sake, women were veiled and they couldn't even go out in public unless they were escorted by a family member who was a man. So you're telling me it's their fault you're lusting? All of this to keep men from committing adultery as if it was all the woman's issue. Well, Jesus, thankfully, is about reality. His teachings about truth. And the truth is, if I lust, it reveals a problem with my own heart, not a woman being beautiful. So, because it's a heart issue, let me get back to the original question. Is Jesus' command only for men? I would say no. I would say this, this is about the human heart. 
especially in our culture where thankfully women are getting more and more uh, status in our culture, right? The women are, are gaining more and more rights and have more social equality. They have more uh, access to being open in public with how they look and, and the careers that they choose and looking lustfully toward men. I saw an ad on TV the other day. It was for some kind of sandwich wrap. You know how they make those wraps? And out of the end of one side of the wrap was like this stud guy with no shirt on and just his waist up. And so he's sticking out of the wrap looking like this. And there's this woman who's like, oh, yeah. So she's eating this wrap with the man. And I'm pretty sure marketers know their market. And that wasn't for guys. Like, that did not make the rap seem more appealing to me. So, so somebody knows something that there is a, a draw for, uh, for women and, 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 and lusting at least after um, some aspect of the male species or gender or whatever. <clears throat> I think we are our own species, though. So Jesus applies uh, uh, this teaching to men and women, which is a big issue. And I'm sure you thought about this, right? If we are all created by God as sexual beings, and God gives us desires for the opposite sex, then why should I feel guilty every time I notice a beautiful woman? It's, it's like, are we set up to fail? Like, this, this really is hard to get your mind around, um, if, if that's the way it is. Well, let's look at a little sentence structure. In Greek... The word for to look is actually a participle, which just means that it's got an ing on there. It's an active word. And so uh, more accurately, we could translate this. Everyone who goes looking for a woman with lust for her has committed adultery. So it's an active, like, like there's a difference between I'm standing here and a pretty woman comes by and, I, oh, I think she's pretty. And then me going, she's hot and just... You know, and, and continuing that motion on. There's, it's an activity that I set out to do. Uh, the second thing is, let's take a, th- a look at the word lust. In the Greek, it's epithumeo. Epi, epi is a preposition that means on. Okay, epi. Thumeo means mind. So it's something that we, we bring to place on our mind, almost meditating on this person. In fact, epithumeo is the way that Okay, remember the Old Testament was written in Hebrew and Aramaic, and then it was translated into Greek. And the Ten Commandments were part of that, right? And there's this, one of the Ten Commandments is, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not epithumeo your neighbor's wife. That's how it's translated. So the epithumeo could mean like, uh, not only to desire because someone's pretty, but desire to want to possess them, either in your mind or you fantasize about having them in a sexual way. Okay, so it's a little bit different than just noticing someone's pretty. Okay, it's an active pursuit of wanting to mentally or physically own someone else. So we could render this sentence, but I say to you, everyone who goes looking at women to lustfully possess her has committed adultery with her in his heart. Everyone who goes looking at a woman to lustfully possess her has committed adultery with her in his heart. Now I know that sexual sin is a huge source of captivity and shame for many. So I want to be very clear. There's a difference between noticing someone and feeling a twinge of desire and looking at someone with the intent to lust. I think Dale Bruner puts this really nicely, so I'm just going to quote him right here. Jesus does not condemn looking with desire. 
Jesus condemns looking in order to desire. He, he goes on. There is a difference. One happens, the other is allowed to happen. The difference between looking with lust, which the text does not say, and looking in order to lust, which the text does say, may seem too subtle. But something important is protected in the difference. Listen to this. To see a person with desire is the result of God-given drive. To be... Enjoyed in marriage, okay? So to see someone, you just see them with desire, it, it, that's a God-given thing. But to be looking at another person in order to lust after them is a sin. Because it uses the other person as a such object. Okay? They cease to become a person to us, and they become an object for our own pleasure. What's the big deal anyway? Right? Why is Jesus so uptight about looking, even in lust, as long as I don't do the deed? Right. I, I recognize that we're a diverse uh, in age group congregation, and um, uh, some of the uh, people that are older than I that I've talked to about this are like, I don't get it. I don't get what the big deal is. But if, let me tell you, even in Christian circles, there is a whole stream of thought that, you know, pornography is not that big a deal. Or, you know, e even um, sexual touching that's not intercourse, that's not that big a deal. Or looking lustfully certainly isn't that big a deal. Why does Jesus seem to think it's such a big deal? Uh, three main reasons. One, lust dehumanizes other people. Lust dehumanizes other people. Remember that Jesus' ultimate ethical arc, what he's ultimately aiming for us to have, is to really, really, really love other people. Love God and love neighbor as yourself. Right now, you are sitting next to people made in the image of the living God. And I guarantee you, no matter what you think, every person you encounter in the world is made in the image of the living God. Your main purpose in life is to love God by reflecting His glorious character and goodness by loving others and caring for His creation. We're steward the place we get to live in. In fact, just turn to the person next to you and say, you are made in God's image and are infinitely valuable. You are made in God's image and are infinitely valuable. Try that. You are made in God's image and infinitely valuable. When we look at others for our own pleasure, we turn people, God's daughters and God's sons, into meat. Lust objectifies others in a most humiliating and undignified way. Sexual intimacy is made to be enjoyed in the covenant of marriage. And besides procreation, it's, it's actually made to build and maintain bonds between a married couple. And when we use other people, we degrade them and commit adultery in our heart. I don't know if you've thought about this. It's a, it's a complex world we live in because we're, we have singleness expected so much later in life. Uh, it, you know, in this culture that Jesus is talking about, 
people are getting hitched like women at 12, 13, 14, guys uh, in their 19, 20, 21. You know, so you're not as single as long. But the, but the laws talk about like, you know, if you uh, aren't married yet and you have sex, you're married now. Like, you've got to pay a bride price if you're the guy who does that. You pay the father of the bride, and you are married. In fact, in, in a Jewish wedding, you go through the ceremony, and then the couple goes into the hoopah, and uh, you consummate. You're not married until you get done, right? So, so in this thought, having sex is a consummation of marriage. right? So um, when we start to... To objectify people as, as sex objects, it, it you know, messes up the whole idea of covenant system. And it, it dehumanizes the other person. Sexuality and spirituality are incredibly linked. There's so much literature about this. When we use others for our sexual fantasy or pleasure, what happens is we begin to grow numb. We begin to grow numb. We can't hear the voice of Jesus as well. We can't discern the work of the Spirit in our own life. And this is the second reason why lust is so dangerous. It humanizes us. It really does. It, it, it messes with our soul. You and I, we're made in God's image. We love the part about Jesus dying for us that we could be forgiven and be with Him for eternity. But there's another side to that coin. You were bought with a price and you're not your own. We're redeemed by Jesus for a new kind of life, not to act like mindless animals. Okay? And, and, and when we foster this um, lusting and turning other people into objects... Um, we're really, what we're doing is numbing ourselves to God's work in our life and trying to fill that void with something else. There's a, a writer who said, um, for every man or woman in the bed of a brothel, there's a hole in their heart longing, longing for God. There's a study done with men addicted to pornography, and they took a control group of men who were not addicted to pornography, equal-sized groups, and they exposed these men to pornographic images. The ones who were not addicted to pornography did what you'd expect. They looked at the pictures and saw different body parts and were aroused and all that stuff. It gets more detailed. The men who were addicted to pornography who looked at these images, the researchers noticed that almost all of them stared at the women's eyes. And their conclusion was, this isn't a Christian research or anything, this is just the conclusion of the study. The conclusion was that these men are addicted to a search for intimacy. That it started with maybe a sexual attraction deal, but the hook in looking at the women's eyes is that they want to connect intimately with someone. Lust is a quick fix for false intimacy. It's a quick fix to feel better. But it's counterfeit and fleeting. Finally, sexual lust leads very easily into bondage. I, I, think, I really think that's one of the third reasons why Jesus is so uh, adamant about it. Making uh, sexual pleasure our master rather than God who died to set us free. That, that's how what it boils down to. 
I've said it before, but God knew what he was doing when he created sex. When a man has an orgasm, oxytocin is released into the brain that is more powerful than a shot of heroin. In women, vasopressin is released, which causes a similar high, but also imprints that man to her chemically. In fact, studies have shown that that's why so many uh, women stay with abusive boyfriends when they've had premarital sex. The girlfriend, why don't you get rid of that guy? And it's, I, I don't know, I can't. There's a chemical bonding that happens. I think that's pretty cool that God designed it that way. But when we have sex outside of the covenant relationship, that bonding is to, it sometimes isn't healthy. I, it's not healthy. So God really knew what he was doing by giving this incredible gift of sex. But it's also something that can so easily be twisted and abused. Lust that leads to addiction is not to be taken lightly. Because of these powerful chemicals that affect our brain, I I would say it's most akin to a chemical dependency that masks spiritual and emotional need as well. Last year, the porn industry generated over $300 billion in revenue. That's more than NFL, Major League Baseball, and NBA revenues combined. The thriving porn industry reveals our bondage to sexual lust. It's affordable. In fact, you can find all kinds of snippets on the internet for free. It's accessible. New porn is, I'm not talking images, still shots. I'm talking videos are produced in America one every 39 minutes. Every day, 24 hours. With the internet, pornography has become anonymous. I grew up without the internet. I saw an occasional pornographic magazine because a friend or a friend would steal it from their dad or something like that and they're all worn out, they're like thrown away or something but none of us had the courage to like go into a store with the magazine with the black thing on it and I'm buying porn, you you just didn't do it so it wasn't as accessible but now you can be 12 years old, you have a smartphone, you have a computer when mom and dad are at home, you can get this stuff, the most hardcore stuff and, and no one has to know about it 70% of men in the United States looked at pornography in the last month. That's Christian and non-Christian. Over 30% of women did the same thing, and that number grows every year. So it's not just a guy issue. Guys are more visual. Girls want more. Talk to me. I mean, that might be true as a general rule, but not anymore. Porn and sexually promis- uh, sexual promiscuity have become legitimate consumer products. The question is, who's being consumed? In Proverbs 7, there's a story of a young person who's walking down the street, tempted by sexual lust. The warning is not to pay any attention. Um, Her husband's gone away. She's made her bed with perfume and flower petals. Come, my young man. Come, let us drink of love until the morning. He comes in but did not know that he was going to his own slaughter. My message is not about the ills of porn. I don't think it's good. But my point is that porn is such a big industry that something is made every 39 minutes because there's a market for it. And that means there's a lot of our hearts corrupted. A man named Paul Mickey wrote, Sow a thought, and you reap an act. Sow an act, and you reap a habit. Sow a habit, 
and you reap a character. Sow a character and you reap a destiny. What's our destiny going to be? Jesus made us. He knows how powerfully sexual lust can grip us. He died to set us free from hell and to set us free from bondage to false masters. And that's why he teaches so strongly that it's better for you and I to pluck out eyes and cut off hands than it is to go into hell. Of course, Jesus is not advocating self-mutilation. Dallas Willard points out that you can cut off all your body parts and roll into hell a bloody stump with a heart full of lust. Okay? So the issue is not plucking and cutting, right? What Jesus is saying is do whatever drastic, countercultural, maybe humiliating measures it might take to ensure that we don't foster hearts of lust. I must, as a preacher, resist the temptation to say, don't see this kind of movie, don't wear these kind of clothes, don't go to these places. Because then what I'm doing is I'm taking Jesus' ethic, his fulfillment of a law, and I'm giving us more laws, Right? We are all different in how we relate to this issue. For some of you, uh, you may have a real problem with this. For some of you, I'm, just be thankful you don't. Okay? Uh, my struggle, and I do struggle, may look very different than yours. I might be weaker. I might be stronger in some areas. But plucking and cutting is going to look different for me and what I need then it may look for you. So the call here, the application, if you will, is to take the time to figure out what it takes for you. To find wholeness in this area. For me, I have an accountability partner that I pray with uh, on an average of three times a month. We meet almost weekly. We ask each other direct questions about our adultery of the heart, our use of the internet, uh, the movies we watch, how we're doing just in public looking at people. I need that. Uh, You may need something different than that. But here's the thing. We all need community. The lie, and this is the big lie, is that you can take care of your issue by yourself. I'm reading a book about addiction. It's called The Last Addiction. It talks about alcoholism and drug abuse and sexual addiction. The last chapter is The Last Addiction. It's the lie that you and I, in anything that we're addicted to, because everyone's addicted to something, it's the lie that I can deal with it on my own. And the call is, is to trust in, in Jesus for our healing. And you know how Jesus most often works? Sometimes you'll meet a person who, Jesus just zapped me and now I don't have an issue anymore. And that's great. For 99% of us, that's not how it works. But Jesus does work through the church. He can work through counseling. You know, he can work through um, groups like Sexaholics Anonymous. He can work through all kinds of different ways that are already in place, but they all involve other people. And so for plucking and cutting, some of these drastic measures might be swallowing our pride and saying, I have an issue. I need you to walk with me in this. This, I know. That he died that we might live and that he forgives the repentant. Jesus, more than anyone, longs to restore us 
to fullness. He wants to start a sexual revolution where sex is good but not God. And if your heart is ready for that kind of revolution, you can begin it right now. I want to close with a prayer by J. Barry Shepherd that um, I actually keep in the front of my journal. Do you pray with me? Both these emotions, Lord, anger and now lust, can and often do take me by surprise. So I have little or no control over their onset. And this is not for the most part a gentle, gradual experience. In far less than an instant, Lord, I can know lust in all its full and fierce intensity. Is it not then instinct, Father, a fire within that reaches back to our more primitive me that's connected with the essential urge to propagate the preservation of the species? But then how can I be judged for something over which I have so little real control? I recall that Martin Luther on the topic of temptation said, You cannot stop birds from flying over your head, but you can prevent them from nesting in your hair. It's the nesting that I suspect you're concerned about. The birds fly over. The thoughts and impulses enter my mind willy-nilly. But I do not have to invite them to settle down and make themselves at home. My world is saturated by such traps and pitfalls, Lord. Books and magazines, films and billboards, even the daily newspaper will encourage me to toy with, yes, to entertain such thoughts. Sex nowadays seems almost an obsession, used, perverted, prostituted in countless ways to sell things to me, to attract my raw attention like a carrot for a donkey, a red rag for a bull. I suppose I should resent being treated like an animal in heat, but all too often, Lord, it works. And I'm caught despite myself. Father, forgive my abuse of your gift of sexuality, my mindless lack of self-control, my foolish, vain imaginings. Help me to begin at least to move forward toward your purity, a purity which does not have to be monastic or ascetic or asexual, but which expresses and enjoys my sexual being within the context of honest, responsible, and appropriate relationships. Let my sexuality hold much more in it of love than of lust. Cleanse my mind and body. Fit them for the presence of your passionate yet purifying spirit. Amen.